0: Welcome to the Infra Insider podcast from InfraBee, a leader in renewable energy and infrastructure executive search. Join us as we dive into insightful conversations with industry leaders, pioneers, and visionaries shaping the future of infrastructure and renewable energy. Discover the latest trends, innovations, and challenges driving the transition to a greener, more resilient future. Please remember to like and subscribe. have Jonathan Maxwell, the founder and managing director of SDCL Sustainable Capital Limited. Jonathan is a visionary leader in sustainable finance and energy efficiency, and he's recently penned a thought-provoking book titled The Edge. The Edge offers a contemporary perspective on the transformative events that have shaped our world, focusing on climate change, global resource competition, and the challenges we face in energy, security, and the economy. Jonathan's insights are not only timely, but also provide a roadmap for understanding and addressing the critical issues at the intersection of resources, climate, and global sustainability. At the driving force behind SDCL, a prominent energy efficiency fund, Jonathan brings a wealth of experience and expertise to our discussion today. Join us as we explore the key themes of the edge, dive into the world of sustainable finance and uncover actionable insights for a more sustainable future. Without further ado, let's welcome Jonathan Maxwell to the show. Hi, Jonathan.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited for having the discussion.
0: So it's a pleasure to have you, and thank you for also joining us so early uh, in, in the day. Uh, I understand you're in New York today, we just joked uh, that you'd just run a 10K uh, uh, been to the gym, had breakfast. <laughs> um, but bit seriously, Jonathan, you know you're managing an incredible fund, SDCL. We had the pleasure of recruiting for you. How, how do you run a, a a fund, run a team, and write a book? <laughs> you're putting us well, all to shame. Yeah, so
1: um, <laughs> partly I don't know, but partly it's because, um, I guess, uh, particularly after the events of last February, March last year when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, the, we, we kind of entered a new phase for the energy story. Um, I've been involved in energy, particularly the what's now described as the energy transition and sustainable infrastructure for a long time, set up sustainable development capital. 16 years ago and um, you know run it ever since uh, but what happened last year at the beginning of last year was described by the international energy agency as the world's first glo- the world's first global energy crisis <laughs> it was a very big transformative moment uh, what happened last year is it from a sort of human perspective it's unbelievably tragic um, and when something like that happens as a human being, obviously one of the biggest questions that comes to mind is why, why is this? Happening? Yeah. Um, and um, I think there's an underlying story, there's a geopolitical story as, and, and some um, uh, you know, sort of tactical individual reasons, but there's also one of the strands of uh, contribution as to why it's happening, it relates you know to the energy world um, and competition, for critical resources, and we've spent much of our lives watching as um, you know regional conflicts brew up around energy. Today, yeah. still, eighty-two percent of energy is oil, gas, and coal, and people fight over it. it. We've been used to that being in the Middle East, but what was happening at the beginning of last year was we started to see the tension and the conflict and the competition for resources. Yeah. Migrate to other, uh, other uh, arena. And that flashpoint um, was important. So that's the first point, which is sort of looking at flashpoints for geopolitical conflict over resources. The second point, I think, which is a big one, was an introspection for me. I've been running SDCL for 15 years, and I really wanted to hold up a mirror and say, Am I doing the right thing? Sustainable development capital really essentially is all about efficiency. That's the way we look at the world. But maybe. We're on the wrong track. Maybe we should go all in on, I don't know, you know, whatever it might be—hydrogen batteries, sort of nuclear. You know, is our way of thinking Mm. about efficiency still relevant in this world? So, partly the book was a real introspection about what are the biggest levers you can pull to help the other sort of really, really big global crisis, which is climate. And what I found, and the reason I wrote the book, is that. Uh, actually, I firmly believe that, yes, efficiency is one of the most important frameworks that I the world. But not only can it help with climate change, but it can even help with these geopolitical conflicts.
0: I was going to ask you what actually inspired you to write the book, but you, you, you've gone into it there. Um, I suppose what inspired you to create a, a, a firm that focused on, on energy efficiency? Because in many respects... 15 years ago I think that was ahead of your time and um, you know renewables wasn't really being looked at so prominently obviously it's more popular now but now we've kind of gone through a stage of investing in renewables and I think over the last 12 months energy efficiency has has, has really taken center stage so so what inspired you in the earlier days to, to look at the, the market from that investment perspective?
1: Um. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. When we I set up the firm in 2007, you know we're now 53 people. Um, we've got hundreds of people under full-time employment in our project. but 15, 16 years ago, um, this wasn't as big a theme. Um, the company's called Sustainable Development Capital. <laughs> it was available <laughs> as a name to buy it. Nobody was really focused on it as much, or fewer people. Um, there were no Nobel Prizes that had been handed out to the NIPCC or Al Gore. There were no iPhones, by the way, at the beginning of 2007. So, so it was a slightly different world <laughs> we were living in. Um, so, uh, but, but I think a lot of us were looking at climate change as a big feature, but also looking at just simply the environmental degradation that was taking place and the impact that was having on GDP. as an economics, actually, an economics argument back then you know, if in China um, there were reports that they were losing 10 to 12 percent of GDP through environmental degradation. So I don't mean to sound fluffy, so breaking it down, water and air pollution, acid rain deforestation, um, uh, sort of factory closures, uh, so sort of massive day-to-day economic impacts. And that was, I've spent a lot of time in China in 2006 in particular. And actually, the Chinese government said they needed to some, do something about it. And they said two things, one of which is they set out the medium-term economic plan, which has resulted today in them owning the supply chains for renewables and the critical metals and minerals that the world depends on. We're now understanding that six, sixteen years later. But the other thing they said was they said, which is fascinating to me, they said that energy productivity is going to be critical. And they said... We, we, efficiency is a really you know, fundamental part of the solution to any of these problems. So they set a policy in place which was to reduce the amount of energy used per unit of GDP output economics by 4% every single year, 20% over a five year plan from 2006. And I was blown away by that concept yeah. that you yeah. could look at something that would give you economic productivity as an environmental, um, at the same time as building renewables yeah efficiency what i didn't understand and i'll make this point quickly is that this was what china was saying but we in the uk and in the united states and in continental europe had just the same problem we were hugely inefficient uh it turned out it took me three five years to really get to a deeper understanding of how inefficient we are, we are in the UK, Europe, and the United States. But this mantra of being more efficient, cutting costs, improving productivity, and to the extent you could take energy out of the system, improving carbon emission um, uh, characteristics, that was really compelling for me. But so few people were looking at that. And I thought it was yeah. an area we could really specialize in.
0: Yeah. And you know what? I actually really like the theme of the book. You know, you ask a lot of questions at the start of the book. And as I read that, I was reading through the questions and thinking, you know what? These are questions that I hadn't actually thought about asking. So I can see that your your kind of way of thinking of how you wrote the book is obviously the way that you invest as well. Let let's just take a closer look at the book. Um can you I mean, what what we've discussed at the start of it is I suppose what's covered quite a lot in chapter one, and actually the book is He's got great depth. As I actually read it, I thought, gosh, I wonder how the current conflict uh, would fit into that. I'd, I'd, love a, I'd love a paragraph on that and actually noted uh, that you put a further commentary on LinkedIn uh, recently about that. So thank you. Can you talk us through the main themes of the book and, and what people should expect um, from reading it? Yeah,
1: so, so uh, you're right. It starts off with a geopolitical conflict and asks, analysis and asks why some of these features are happening i do i did actually touch in the in the first chapter on um the dynamics of what's happening in the middle east and, did. and the mediterranean around energy and i'm not for a minute suggesting that that is what's caused the yes tragedy in israel and gaza not at all you know, as a match in the matchbox, I think it's important to understand that it's there so that we can understand what's going on in in, in all of its complexity. But so it's, it starts off with basically an, a, a point which I find extremely important. And if you ask why the Russia-Ukraine crisis happened, one of the features which I think is very important is that on the 22nd of February last year, 2022, which is the um, two days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Germany mothballed Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 was a huge, at least $11 billion pipeline that had been built by Russia in conjunction with some of the European utilities to bypass Ukraine. Um, Why bypass Ukraine uh, with natural gas? Well, Europe was, was the largest market of its kind for Russian natural gas. Europe in turn needed 40% of its natural gas from Russia, that was its import. Um, the, the, uh, the Russian pipeline, original one, North Stream 1 went straight through Ukraine and Russia mm-hmm. was five years through, sorry, halfway through a five year lease. The mothballing on the 22nd of February was not welcome by Russia. There had been a huge build-up. And a politically um, a lot of tension around NATO um, and so on, but uh, that was a really significant trigger and w- within forty eight hours we saw Russia invade ukraine so I think the the, the, the the importance of Ukraine as a conduit of Russian gas intercontinent into Europe number one you know but also I think a better understanding is is important as to what Ukraine represents. There's a lot of natural gas that someone exploited in Ukraine. There's a lot of coal, which was very important to the old USSR in Ukraine. The concentration of those resources is in and around the Donbass and the Hansk regions and the breakaway regions that had been causing the geopolitical tension running up to the mothballing of Nord Stream 2. I'm not saying it's all about energy, but I am saying that energy is a very important part of the answer to the question, why? Is this happening? This is a resource critical area uh, in Ukraine. So that's the. It, it, uh, but I don't limit it to Ukraine. We talk about other other potential yeah. geopolitical flashpoints, Middle East, Arctic, which I think is an extremely important yeah. and interesting thing to understand. I hadn't actually.
0: Re- I hadn't actually realised um, about the Arctic side of things, and obviously where where Russia believe uh, their ownership lies. So that was really really interesting, and and, and a lot of. I suppose a lot of things that you haven't thought about, you may read in the press or in the paper, but it kind of it puts it into greater context, into the effects on climate change, security, and and, and efficiency. Um, as the book uh, moves forward, I suppose you, you're building up to um to, to what it means for the world. Yeah. But I think probably something that especially a lot of our viewers would be or listeners would be interested in is. You know how, how do we change this, how do yeah. we make an impact on it and that yeah. obviously ties into the role of uh, SDCL as well in terms yeah. of the type of investments you're making.
1: Yeah well, and I think it's very important that, that uh, the driver for writing the book in the first place is all very well calling out problems <laughs> but if you're in business <laughs> it's about providing solutions to problems
0: yeah.
1: um, and so and actually the subtitle of the book is then what we can do about it, it's the uh, competition yeah. resources creating is the argument creates climate change and conflict. But going back to the Russia-Ukraine uh, example, and to answer your question, uh, there's a stunning, it goes, comes out right in the middle of the book, but there's a stunning um, statement that the European Commission made in 2014, the last time Russia invaded Ukraine when they annexed Crimea. And it's a really important statement. And they said for every unit of natural gas that we don't use here in, in Europe, is 2.6 units of natural gas we don't need to buy from Russia. Yeah. Now, in that statement, I think is one of the most important um, answers to the question about why this is, <laughs> the world is, works like it does, and how inefficient it is, but also what you can do about it. The reason they were saying, well, the reason that they didn't say it's for every unit of gas we don't buy is one unit of gas we don't need to buy from Russia, is that so much energy, primary energy, like natural gas, is wasted before it gets to the point of use. And that's one of the most important problems in the energy sector. If you take gas out of the ground, you lose very round numbers, 10 percent, extracting it and converting it into the pipeline. If you put it into a turbine, which is the largest producer of electricity, turbines and engines can only thermodynamically make half a unit of electricity. The other half a unit of energy goes up into this if it's in the if you if it's generated centrally, it goes up, it's lost, it goes up into space as heat, and then even after you've lost ten percent, fifty percent through generation, you then lose another five to ten percent through transmission and distribution. So that's what the European Commission was saying. Every unit of natural gas we don't use is two point six. We don't need to buy from. Russia. What they were really talking about is efficiency. Can we be more efficient? Yeah. If we're how. And there are two ways. Don't build energy over here, build it over there. Build energy closer to the point of use. So instead of dumping the heat, which is the largest part of the energy, bring it closer to the point of view. So decentralisation is a critical feature. And then the second point is what this point about efficiency. Efficiency of supply is decentralisation. Efficiency of demand recognises that buildings, industry transport, which is where 70% of energy is used, typically lose or waste around 10 to 30 percent of their energy. So the the clue actually is in the name of the book. EDGE is an acronym we use in business. It actually means efficient and decentralized generation of energy. That, I think, is probably the largest lever that we can pull. There are, we need to build as much renewables as quickly as we possibly can. The argument of the book is we need, it's not all of this or all of that, it's not all batteries or hydrogen, it's all of it. But We have to understand and accept that the energy system that we've built in the UK, Europe, and the United States, although it was the best that we could do at the time, today is extremely inefficient. And if we don't fix that problem, not only are we not going to fix energy security, it's going to be continue to be incredibly expensive to supply energy, Um, and we're going to continue along a pathway where uh, I'm afraid decarbonisation is out of reach. The only way, particularly over the next five to 10 years. The only way that we can achieve really substantial progress is by putting efficiency alongside clean energy generation. It's at least as important, and the European Commission, as my final point on this, after that Russian uh, annexation of Crimea, the European Commissioner, Ertinger, came out with a policy which was mumbled for six or seven mm. years. is now a very loud policy in the European Commission, and it's called energy efficiency first not tomorrow maybe next year when we get round to it energy efficiency first
0: i didn't actually realize that's what that's what uh edge stood for so that's brilliant and um, maybe maybe some of our uh listeners uh probably have more insight into that I, I love the book how i love it how it just makes you think and and also all of these uh, all of these wars and all of these you know all you know going on across across europe also has a huge effect on other countries' policies, and we've seen them all change direction. Uh, The US, for an example, they've they've really turned their attention to to renewables, and Biden put a number of acts in there uh, to make it more uh, tax efficient uh, for all of those players investing. Um, in terms of energy efficiency, we've covered it slightly there. What what do you deem as the best type of um, sustainable investment? in this current era that we're in at the moment? What, what what type of technologies are they? What kind type of investments, what kind of companies are, are you looking to invest in? So the framework, um,
1: and I think this is a really important part of the reason I wanted to write the book and break it down, because books, by the way, give you some time. <laughs> it's very yeah. difficult to answer this question on a podcast or in a meeting with an investor. But the reason to unpack it was a couple of things, one of which was to say, Uh, Fundamentally, I think the first question, the first framework that we need to think about on any technology um, selection or any approach or any investment is around efficiency. Uh, And uh, are we delivering for the problem that we're trying to solve, the lowest cost, lowest carbon, most reliable solution to that problem? All of those features are around efficiency. So if something isn't efficient, and I, I'm not going to start to get into a big debate on today yeah. about whether yeah. electricising offshore wind to make hydrogen, yeah. store it to make power and getting a 22% efficiency ratio makes sense. In all cases, there may be reasons to do that. But if efficiency comes first as part of your priority, I think it really helps prioritise, not just for government, but also for investors, where to place capital. Um, uh, so you know, coming on to the point, I think from a macro perspective, we're not, we're just not going to, from an economic and political perspective, we're just not going to get decarbonisation done if we continue to waste two-thirds, three-quarters of the energy in the system. At the same time, it stands to reason that the cost and carbon inefficiency of that is horrendous, and there are policy structures that can be put in place to address that. But when it comes down to technology selection, to answer your question, I think it's, in a the, one of the best uh, reasons, to focus on renewable energy generation particularly renewable power uh which is you know an important part of this uh is that it's lower cost than alternatives yeah. and um and you know if you can generate energy solutions whether it's solar wind uh solar on site whether it's ground or s4 seed whether it's um even storage if you can create solutions which reduce energy and therefore carbon losses in the system and deliver energy at a Competitive, hopefully even cheaper, which is possible now, price point, and if you can deliver energy to the same or better levels of reliability than the struggling grid that we have today, then yeah. those are arguments for efficient supply. On the other side of it, why put energy into the system if you're just simply going to waste it at the point of use? And, and and I think this is another point I'm trying to make as well. So before I get onto that, lots of technology answers or solutions to the problem of not wasting energy before it gets to where it's needed. But then also let's look on the demand side, and this is something which is critical. As I said before, 70% of energy is used in buildings, industry and transport. Is it okay for shareholders of those companies, let alone for society, for those uh, buildings, industry and transport assets to be wasting 10 30% 10, 30% of the energy. I'm going to pull out one example. I always pull out because it's just simple. But if you take hospitals, hospitals yeah. use energy all day, all night, and all year. And um, one of the ways in which they use energy is lighting. The largest controller of hospitals, operator hospitals in the UK, is the National Health Service. But how are they getting on? How yeah. are they getting on with their lighting? Well only 46% of their lights have been changed to led so far yeah that's extraordinary because you could what's happening before is that you've got a 60 watt lamp if you turn it to a 6 watt lamp that cuts the energy costs and therefore carbon footprint associated with lighting by about 90% why is it why why are those lights not been changed in their entirety every day the nhs is wasting time money carbon and actually having a product which needs to be replaced so often. It's hugely inefficient and unreliable. So there are better solutions available on the demand side. And that's it. So it's not just about supplying energy more efficiently, it's also about making sure it's not wasted
0: at the point of use. It's interesting, isn't it? A lot of it is about waste. What other ways can companies be more efficient? What basic things are there out there um, to ensure that there isn't this mass waste going on?
1: So um, I think or, 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 uh, the way I think about it is 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 about the infrastructure with which the business is run. So um, if, if you look at the, the the footprint of a business, if it's a data center, it's very straightforward to answer your question because you measure data centers in megawatts and not square feet. And if you think about, so what? What can business do about this? The big wins will come in the information technology market, data centers, that will come in hospitals and universities. Uh, they'll come in big industrial facilities because these are the big energy and carbon emitters. Steel, cement, chemicals, and plastics, it's about 40% of the answer. So what can you do in those? Ed- it's all about mechanical electrical infrastructure at the end of the day. So uh, put in better lights, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, uh, motors through which half of the world's electricity runs. Not enough of them are variable speed drives or efficient uh, systems, uh, a lot, most of them reply, uh, by the way, also rely on on metals, minerals, and even rare earths that can cause environmental problems. Um, so mechanical and electrical changes that can cut costs, improve productivity, and reduce carbon. Um, on the transport sector, that's the other big feature, and um, transport losses, and here I'm in, in New York today, but the transport losses, if you take oil extraction and look at how much goes into the end use about uh, to to to, to actually to well to wheel efficiency in the us is you know less than 30 percent pretty much the same oh, wow. the so you know uh, these are the big areas where we can be much more efficient whether or not we're using oil or if we can trans you know if we can then migrate away from traditional petrochemicals into other forms of generation or um, you know supply for transport like electrification and other features then you know I think that those are big wins. It's not to say that you can fix the entire problem by being more efficient I'm just saying that efficiency has to be the companion to renewable energy or clean energy generation.
0: You use the example of a hospital you know simply by changing um, the lighting to LED lighting you know would 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 offer a huge, huge amounts of their uh, efficiency. Why do you think organisations like hospitals, why do you think organisations in the transport industry, why aren't they doing this?
1: So, um, I think there's a difference between public and private sector. I think at the moment, particularly in countries like the UK, um, I, think it's, I think there's been a difficulty in applying, um, uh, there's, been a diffi- there's been a difficulty in applying um, infrastructure style financing. So. Private sector capital has found it much more difficult to partner with the public sector over the course of the last five or ten years, and obviously that's posed the PFI, PPP, um, yeah, political debate in the UK. Um, I think that there are there are some pretty good examples of public-private partnerships working in the United States. Yeah, um, there are some federal government state programs, and as you mentioned or alluded to earlier, there are now um, federal level incentives that have been put, market incentives that have been put in place, if not concessionary structures, investment tax credits and so on, um, under the Inflation Reduction Act and other measures, which are huge incentives for private capital to deploy into uh, both public and private markets. So I think public sector, particularly in the UK, is a tricky area. I do hold out the hope and expectation that over the coming years um, we're able to break that barrier down. And get a level of collaboration between public and private sector in infrastructure solutions and infrastructure financing techniques that are efficient that could help the public sector. Um, I, I think that opportunity is much bigger sometimes in other markets or even in the UK at sub national level with cities and regional governments than it is with the national or sort of um, yeah, central government departments. So I think that's one barrier, candidly, and it's slightly, slightly challenging. Thing to say, but and I do think that mm. public and private sector need to collaborate um, more 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 constructively on this in the UK. Um, but we're a small uh, a, a small part of this uh, bigger bigger issue. I think on the private sector side, honestly, um, I am. Um, uh, you mentioned that you know we've been growing a lot recently. I think private sector now is has, and this is why one of the reasons I wrote the book. I think I think we've gone through our tipping point in 2022. Um, Nobody really cared about energy security in Europe. Honestly, before January last year, I was writing the Atlantic Council on energy security. It really, this year, everybody cares about energy security in Europe. It's become an existential problem, availability of energy. Um, Second thing for, for industry, a lot of industries have to shut down in Europe if they can't solve that problem. Second one is price. The energy prices have been pushed up because of political, geopolitical instability, because of the creaking grids, because of lack of availability, because of inflation and interest rates, it's all connected. So I think for private sector, that's become a trigger and a tipping point. And then the third is that actually digging into, I think something optimistic, a lot of private sector companies are deeply committed to decarbonisation. There's a whole chapter in the book around greenwash and. In fact, since I wrote the book, a new phrase has emerged, which is green hush, because there's been so much... Green, green what, sorry? Green hush. One I've not the heard things, that, actually. Yeah, one, of the, one of the things I wrote about, I think from chapter nine of the book, is ESG and sustainability and the frameworks and TCFD and all the other acronyms that have come up. And actually, already, by the time I was writing the book, you'd seen lawsuits coming up, um, partly here in the US, particularly Republican states. Having a go at um, ESG investors saying it um, shouldn't sacrifice returns on the altar of the environment. And there are some, the two sides to that argument. But the, for the private sector, there are a lot of lawsuits coming up with advertisements saying uh, our product, our business, our investment is green. And that was challenged. And so that it did actually create some pretty substantial, won't name them all on your podcast, it's in the book with the right legal framework. <laughs> <laughs> It went through a lot of scrutiny, but all my publisher would have, have, have us talk about that. But what was interesting after this is that I think there's now a fear in the private sector um, companies actually to talk that much about what they're doing in green and ESG, because, for fear of backlash, not because what mm, they're doing is a bad absolutely. thing. Right? They, don't want to, they, they just don't want to have the backlash or the challenge from the marketplace. So that, that phrase is now called green hush. In other words, I'm doing this but I'm not yeah. going to talk about it. Actually, for New York Climate Week, it was interesting, one of the headline sponsors of New York Climate Week here in the US just chose to remain anonymous. Now, like three years ago, people would be giving money to climate uh, action as a way of demonstrating their commitment to the sector. Now, major corporates just don't want to have their name out there, but are passionate. So this comes back to my last point that I'm trying to make, was that companies are committed to decarbonisation in the private sector. So they want to cut costs because energy costs are going wild and they're volatile. They want to improve availability and security because the grids cannot cope. grid cannot cope with energy demand increases or the loads that are going onto the system in the UK and Ireland across the US. So they need decentralized. The and then the third point is that they're committed to carbon, decarbonization. And therefore, that's one of the reasons why energy efficiency is, is rocketing up the agenda because they recognize that. How can they make that case if they're wasting so much energy?
0: So in the earlier days of SDCL, when you were pushing energy efficiency and sustainability, um, did people get it? Um, n-
1: nothing, not, not at all like they do today for the most part. So I think that level of sophistication, awareness, muscle memory, frankly, also I have to say to in, in defense of uh, corporate and public sector, some of these technologies have become economically viable and proven over the last ten years. When I started investing in LED light bulbs, which sound you'd roll your eyes, of course, put LEDs in, but nobody mm-hmm. was really doing that before 2012.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, at that point I was trying to convince uh, hotels and um, hospitals that they should be introducing LEDs. And they were just or were even grocery stores and they were they were worried about what the lights would make the you know what would, would make people feel like or what yeah people, i've got to say i've got to
0: say in the early days that light was foul wasn't it that came off an led but again like you say as 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 we've progressed not only has it become more efficient but the technology used around things um, you know has, is, is is i suppose easier for people to grasp and yeah. um, because it is more similar to, to what they were previously using yeah I, uh, that's
1: right. I mean, uh, so 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 I think technology's moved on and, and it's become much more price competitive, which is good, good. So that's the defense. The other side of it, though, is interesting. I've been in this for so long that I would, that somebody used the phrase with me, clean tech 1.0, as if this now, which I think is yeah. right, going through this incredible period of innovation. Yeah. Uh, technology, ideas, business models. I haven't seen that since the noughties, the back end of the to you know, uh, early 2000s. And that was what people refer to now as clean tech 1.0. It ended badly. There was a financial crisis as we all remember, global financial crisis, alongside that and for other reasons including competitiveness with China, the market, a lot of these technology and companies collapsed. But during that period of time, to answer your question about was it different 10-15 years ago, 15 years ago, that was a very interesting period and there were some companies that were really dedicated to decarbonisation in a way that is, we would think, is sophisticated and forward-looking. Now, there's actually a, there's a, there's actually a, a, a statement in my book about a pack that I discovered on my shelf, actually, uh, in 20, 2007. Uh, it was a pack of, uh, of cards, and the cards all had solutions to environmental problems. And I actually compared the solutions that were being pro- proposed by the consulting engineers in 2007. To the to the solutions that are there today. I don't know if you discovered that piece. I think it's later on. There's a, uh, a section on R and D and technology, and it's stunning. It could this this pact written in 2007 could have been the pact that was written in this year, the last month. There were a few bits and pieces that you would tweak, but actually a lot of the thinking is now I'd say 15, 20 years old, and is now coming to fruition today. That's the first point. The second point is there were some companies that I started my journey on with STCL and you know, developing and investing in efficiency projects in particular that were really spearheading this in around 2010. So the big US manufacturers, if you made, um, if you were a retailer, uh, big retailers here, if you made clothing products, sporting brands, some of the UK retailers, a bit the biggest ones, um, all said, do you know what? Ninety percent of our carbons in our supply chain. So they mm-hmm. said, you know, "This is what people now talk about: Scope three emissions." But then the language was ninety percent of our carbons in our supply chain, and that's how actually I started my journey doing efficiency projects. Because if one of these big corporates said, "Where's my supply chain?" It was often overseas. So, we would go yeah. to the
0: factories and we would discover yeah. how inefficient they were. How did, that, how did this happen? I mean, we know that you founded the, the business about 15 years ago and previously you were an investment director at HSBC, weren't you? Yeah. So, so I'm assuming that HSBC weren't looking at this type of investment. Um, uh,
1: so I think HSBC wasn't ready at that time to migrate into a sort of dedicated environmental infrastructure business model at that particular time um, uh, as a bank, Um, but they were immensely proactive in 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 philanthropy. I mean, it was one of the biggest donors and founders of uh, donors to people like the Climate Group, the WWF, Smithsonian and so on. But, But when it came to actually making sustainable investments and coming up with a Framework. My my proposal at the time was let's create a dedicated division of the bank just to focus on environmental infrastructure. Why? Because it's a hard problem to solve, um, and you know it's important to lock yourself in a room, fix the problems, and then you can come out with solutions and not get too distracted by financing toll rods and the rest of it. Um, yeah. And you know that's that was my vision. It was uh, it was a little bit too early for HSBC at the time. Um, Even to this day, I retain an extremely strong relationship with HSBC and all the colleagues that I worked with back then remain strong friends and collaborators, Um, but um, it it was just too early and that's why I set up STCL, I wanted to set up a place which literally woke up in the morning, which we still do, we have a singular focus on how we can cut cost, carbon, improve reliability, how we can get the most efficient and sustainable infrastructure built for, for our clients public or private sector and that's all we do um, and that means that when we face a difficult problem everybody in the business is focused on coming up with a solution to that problem that's commercially sustainable and that's what we do it's a box um, and you know that's something I'm happy and proud about it's the place I want to work that was the idea. And that, 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 I think mean, that's
0: beautiful and you can see your passion for, for the sector um, which you know I'm sure is welcomed by members of your team uh, and people who you invest with. Um, can you tell us about some recent investments uh, that SDCL have made? Yeah, so um
1: we've we've put a portfolio together in our London stock exchange listed investment company is called the SDCL Energy Efficiency Income Trust. So we've put a portfolio together of about one and a half billion pounds worth of projects. Um and uh, about 60% of them are here in the United States, which is why I spend time in, in New York with our teams. Um, uh, and then uh, about 40% in uh, Europe, a little bit in other markets. And what we do there is efficient supply. So we buy and build and improve on um, on site generation. So that could be on site solar, um, which is efficient. We've done an enormous amount of work in on site heat cooling as well as power generation um, so we do that using fuel like waste heat or waste gas I mentioned that steel cement chemicals and plastics were the big industrial yeah. emitters so we've got a huge project here which we um, we're very proud of which takes recycled flue, so basically recycles flue gases coming off of blast furnaces those flue gases would normally be pollution boarding the atmosphere instead we're capturing them and then using them to fuel turbines to make power and steam for steel mills. So it's a secular process. We do that um, with waste heat, with waste gas. Uh, we are taking, in Stockholm, we've got a project which takes the waste gases off of wastewater treatment plant, again, that would otherwise be pollution, and that constitutes the gas grid for Stockholm, actually, which is now mostly a biogas grid, which is exciting. Um, so those are the types of Applications. It 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 sounds like it's quite a broad range of solutions from solar and heat recovery and flue gas recovery in different industries. But we're solving the same problem, which is how do you get energy where it's needed most yeah. efficient. And then on the demand side, uh, on the demand side, um, we're just doing more. I mean, lighting is scaling up, heating, ventilation, air conditioning is scaling up. Um, nobody really thinks in the energy sector. Um, cooling. I say nobody. Fewer. Then think about, when you close your eyes and think of a clean energy project, you'll probably think of a windmill or a solar happen. but actually yeah. there's more growth in cooling demand over the next 10 to 20 years than the entire energy generation or energy demand of China and India put together. So as just thinking about electricity only being 20% of the world's energy, the other 80, this is a stunning number, 80% is other things like transport fuel and heating and cooling so that's the type of thing that we like to focus on as well
0: how do we solve those problems fantastic um i feel like we could talk all day uh and i know that that time time is is limited for you um, but I, I think today's discussion has been incredibly insightful and um, i think that lots and lots of people will if they hadn't already thought about it, we'll be thinking about more efficient investments, how how that we can solve the the, the, the problems around sustainability. Um, And I think that your book is just an incredible roadmap and and takes you through your thought process, but also answers lots and lots of critical questions. Um, I implore everyone to to buy a copy uh, and and have a read of it. And, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and and also we've thoroughly enjoyed both working with SDCL uh, and and following your journey. And, you know, you are at the edge, and and, 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 at the cutting edge um, of sustainable investment and having worked across the investment market for 20 years as a recruiter, working with some prominent infrastructure funds. I think it's only now in the last sort of 18 months that people are now building these sustainable funds, sustainability funds, and that's why I find it so intriguing um, to, to learn about your passion, your insight, and the fact that you were 15 years ahead of everyone else, so Jonathan, well done for that, well done for managing and leading a business, and, and well done for managing to write a book in the midst of all of that, and um, you know, that in itself is, is, is quite simply phenomenal.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for uh, reading and enjoying it. And thank you for having me on today. Thank you so much for your time, Jonathan.